straight into it, and um, we're doing this journey through Luke, and the scripture we're going to be looking at is the parable of the sower. So, does anyone have an actual Bible with them? Like not a digital one? I'm just wondering out of curiosity. Yes, Gil. Well, you, do you want to be the reader then? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, you can come up if you want, or you can either be loud where you are, or you can come. Yeah, all right. Um, so the passage is going to be Luke 8, 1 to 15. So we give it up for Gil? After this, Jesus travelled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven de demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants were withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Yeah, thanks, Gil. So this parable of the sower, Jesus is talking about, um, the, about how this invitation of Jesus to his way into his kingdom is held out for people. And some people receive that and some people don't. And to begin with, that makes me um, feel pretty good about the fact that Jesus, who we have to say was probably our top-shelf evangelist, um, knew that there were a good number of people for whom this wouldn't stick that ultimately it would be partly his sharing, but it would be a lot their choice um, of whether they take on this gospel, whether they receive this invitation. And he begins by talking, he talks about these four different kind of uh, responses to the invitation of Jesus. And he begins with those for whom this invitation never takes root. They never quite get it, they never wanted it, they're not interested for whatever reason where they are in their life, they're not interested in what Jesus is selling. Then secondly, we have those who begin in enthusiasm, but it fades quickly. 
Now, um, any of you, did anyone else here uh, go to youth rallies, go to youth group or anything like that, and turn up to these big, like, yeah, come on, um, and um, go to these big youth rallies. And uh, I remember going to the first one where I had my first tangible encounter with the Holy Spirit, this experience of the Holy Spirit. And I was so enthusiastic. I was in love with Jesus. It was so great. I got born again, and then I did it about 20 more times. I went to the front over and over and over again for about two years just to make sure that it had stuck. Um, but it got a couple of years in, and I remember I was at a youth event, and the same speaker who'd been at the first one was at this one. And at that point, it, like the rubber had met the road for me, like the enthusiasm had dissipated. And whereas in those early days, I used to like pray, and it felt like tingles and excitement, and, and you're just like, whoa, the Spirit is here. Suddenly it was like the rubber met the road. It was like, I don't know if you want to talk in relationship terms, it's like I was infatuated with Jesus to begin with. And then I arrived two years in, and it feels quite different. And I remember saying to the speaker, I said, what happened? And I must have been really intense because he said, mm, I don't know. <laughs> um, and, um, and so there are those who begin with enthusiasm, but it fades. And then thirdly, there are those who believe, but in time the worries, the riches, um, worries, riches, and weeds choke away their faith. The day-to-day happenings of life rise up, they get their hooks around their heart, and this thing which began with passion and excitement and commitment to Jesus just all seems a bit too hard. And then finally he says, if people persevere beyond those things, if they want to receive this invitation, if they persevere beyond enthusiasm, if they persevere and are not are choked by the worries, the riches, and the pleasures of this world, then not only do they grow, but their growth is so infectious that it causes others to grow. That there is a multiplying effect to this growth. That these people are so electric, so full of the Spirit of God, that others are compelled to follow God too. And today, I don't want to look at all four of these because there's a lot you can say. For the first one, I think, for most people in this room, there may be some of you here tonight who this is the first time you've stepped into a church. Um, but even for you, you were willing to step into a church, right? You're up for the conversation we're going to have tonight. You might have been brave to do it, but you're here. And if that's you, legend. I can't imagine stepping into a space more intimidating than a church if you're in that space. So good on you. And then there's probably some of you here maybe newish to faith and you have some of that enthusiasm. Um, but I would say that the majority of people in this room are those whose biggest threat to their faith is worries, riches, and pleasures that will gather around their heart, um, tangle cords around their heart, and rob them of the life in Jesus. So I want to focus on the third, because when I look at our Western context, it seems to me that one of the greatest threats seems to be these weeds. It's not the grand things that happens in our lives. It is the day-to-day things which wear away at our resolve and our dedication to Christ. We, um, I uh, remember a few years ago when I led this church, but before this working for a youth agency called Zeal, um, I had this real awareness that most late teens and early 20s, if they had a faith in their teens, lose it when they hit tertiary study. Now, I don't know where they got the stats, but the popular stat out there is 9 out of 10 do not continue to have a faith. Um, I would say, even if you say, oh, that sounds a bit sketchy, we could say safely 7 out of 10, I think, anecdotally. That a lot of people at that point choose not to have a faith. And so I sort of, I wondered for a few years, I'm like, what do we do to get these 20-somethings to continue, or these late teens to continue to want to have a faith in Jesus at this point? 
And then a few years later, I learned about this phenomenon in the church at the moment, where there are men in their 50s and 60s who reach this point in their lives where they have helped all the church building projects, and they've put all the money into the thing, and they've turned up to all the meetings, and they reach this point of looking back at the legacy on their life, and they look at a church in decline, and they go, what the fuck was the point of that? Like, actually, you know? And many of them head out the back door at that moment. And so I thought, okay, we've got 20-somethings who are leaving. We've got men in their 60s who are leaving. And then I came into my 30s. Um, I'm, uh, 30s was 37 a week ago. And what I have watched in my 30s is that many of those who had such deep conviction and passion for Jesus and would do anything for Jesus are gradually stepping away. Now, they don't do it in a kind of a 20-something thing of a big FU to the church. They just take Jesus, who was once priority number one or number two, and they gradually move him to five, six, seven, eight, somewhere behind the mortgage and soccer practice and everything like that. And, it, and, and so I, I learned about these 20-somethings who are losing their faith. I learned about these 60-somethings who are losing their faith. And then I watched 30-somethings losing their faith. And it started to make me wonder, maybe it's not, particular, it's not about particular generations who do this. But I think it's possible that our faith just needs to reinvent itself every 10 years of our lives. I think our faith needs to reinvent itself every 10 years of our lives. And it is those, in those moments, if we cannot come to grips each 10 years with a more expansive, more dynamic version of our faith, we normally step off at that point. My experience has been in um, ministry has been this, that people generally walk away from their faith in moments of profound life transition. When everything is up for grabs, they suddenly realise that maybe their faith could be up for grabs too. There was this hope we had in COVID in the church that everybody would return after COVID. In truth, a lot of people thought, you know what, I actually quite like my Sunday morning or my Sunday night, and they never came back again. <laughs> Profound life transition became a way for them to reevaluate everything, and they decided that their faith didn't matter to them as, as much as it did before. It's in these profound life transitions where the worries, the riches, and the pleasures seem to have this particularly powerful chokehold on us. These moments of liminality of being between spaces when things are up for grabs, that it's easy for us to walk away. And so I want to look today at three big transitions that I think happen in our lives. Um, these rocky moments where it's easy for faith to go south. And what might be some of the tools that Christ gives us to actually endure through those moments. And what I'll say, there is no one in this room who this will not be relevant to, because you are either entering one of these transitions, you're either in the middle of one, you're heading out of one, or you're walking with a friend who's in the middle of one. These transitions are a reality of our life, so everyone in this room, this is relevant to you tonight, these transitions that we go through. And the transitions to, to set them up, I think, especially the transitions of age and stage, moving from age and life, one, one kind of, I guess, generational market to another. Transitions of wealth, um, uh, increase in affluence, and then transitions of loss or grief, when some really awful stuff goes on in your life, and you have to decide how to respond to that. Sound like an alright journey? You follow me? Yeah. Cool. Couple you out. Um, so the transition of age. Um, when I was um, 18 or 19, I was absolutely sick of the church, eh? <laughs> It was so sick of it. Like, if I have to go to another prayer meeting, 
If I have to do another Bible in one year program, if I have to put out one more row of chairs, I swear to God, I will scream. <laughs> I was so, so, so done. But the reality that lay behind that um, is that at youth group, I had been given answers to question the questions that were being asked at that stage of my life. But as I stepped into tertiary study in a wider world, the answers I had for that season were not big enough for the questions that were in front of me. I can remember being in a lecture one day, I was doing a paper on post-colonial literature, and they were talking about colonisation and, um, and, and places where missionaries, Christian missionaries, had been the vanguard of colonisation. And I was listening through it, and I suddenly realised that everything they were t- um, these people had done was what I had been taught to do to evangelise my friends over the last 10 years. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm not the good guy. I'm the bad guy. <laughs> And so these bigger questions were opening up, and I just didn't have answers for them. It took me to this massive place of frustration, and I think probably like quite a few in this room, you can relate to this stage probably? Yeah, somewhat? No, none of you? Um, um, Paul, I think, puts this kind of well in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. So the journey with God, I mean, the journey with God is not about building a uh, brick wall of belief, where we learn something at one stage of our life, and we put another, put a brick down. And we learn something else, and we put a brick down, and we put another one on top of it. Because that's just dogma, right? But our relationship with God is that. It's a relationship. It is a dynamic moving thing and like any relationship it needs to adapt and it needs to change i've heard it put this way um that our faith in god is kind of like a crystal that you hold in the light right so if you look at a crystal or a prism holding in the light and we look at that from one angle we might see a red beam coming off the edge of it you know a red glisten and the wind comes through or we turn that crystal and suddenly it refracts blue instead of red And we turn it again and suddenly it refracts green instead of red. And what happens happens with this, uh, the the reason I talk to this, is because the substance of the crystal has never changed. But our relationship and our perception of it has. eh? And so in our journey with God, we can expect um, that the God who we looked at as red, or maybe the God who we looked at as the revolutionary justice Jesus, then becomes blue, who might be the Jesus says, I just love you so much and you have... Deep wounds within you, and I want to do some work on your heart before you climb the next mountain. Um, That um, our faith is this continuing thing of the substance of God staying the same, but our relationship to that changing and us understanding God differently. And this can be incredibly painful, because what a lot of us do is say we go through our teens and we say, God is red. God is red, and we tell everyone how red God is. And maybe if you're like me, you stand up in front of hundreds of people and you tell them how red God is, and then you go through a certain journey and then suddenly God is green. And you're not sure what to do with it anymore. It's a painful thing to dismantle our old beliefs and to have to move on from those. Um, John McHero has this great thing. He says, sometimes the greatest barrier to our relationship with God is our last thought about God. Sometimes the greatest barrier to our relationship with God is our last thought about God is the idea that was so comfy, like a pair of old jeans or a pair of old shoes, that at some point we have to put something else on. And so this is the transition of age, I think, where we come to different stages. And for some of you in this room, 
you may then come to a stage where the youth group, um, the youth group God, the, the diamond has turned, and you're now looking at the world around you and going, I need a more robust relationship with this Jesus to be able to carry on. And often I think for some people, if you're not in the right environment, you come to ask them those questions and some well-meaning person calls it a faith crisis. It's not a faith crisis. It's a dynamic, alive relationship with Jesus. And you're coming to know him in a new depth. And that's painful and that's hard, but it is not an interruption to faith. It is the journey of faith to have to relearn who Christ is in each season of our lives. Am I making sense to you guys Good. so far? Um, so what do we need to make it through the stage? Because we're going to go through it a few times, and I think this is particularly pronounced, this age and stage thing, at that moment of kind of 18 to 25. What do we need to come through, through this? The first thing we need is community. And the fatal blow to this transition will be if you say, I'm going through some challenges at the moment, I'm going through a deconstruction, I just need to be on my own. That is the kiss of death to this process of faith. It absolutely is. 90% of the Bible is written to communities. More than 90% of the Bible is written to communities, not to individuals. No um, time in history has been as determined as ours to think we can work out the big questions of faith by going and sitting alone. And let's be honest, our generation has barely read the Bible and barely prayed to begin with. So our hope that if we retreat into some space on our own without community, if we don't have the influence of all these people around us, then I will work out my deconstruction. I will turn the diamond on my own. I will understand red and blue. It is the kiss of death to your faith. Community is crucial. And what is crucial in that moment too is that we surround ourselves with people a little bit further down the journey who have walked, worked out how to work, walk some of those transitions. The question I think for those of us going through these transitions of age and stage is often not what do I feel like in this moment here, but who do I want to be in 10 years? Who do I want to be in 10 years? You may right now wrestle with the deepest things of faith, but my guess would be for many of you, you don't enjoy that wrestle. It's deeply painful for your faith to be unraveling. And what you need is someone who can help you to imagine what it will look like at the end of all that wondering, someone who can help you to turn the diamond. The second thing we need, so we need community. The second thing we need is action and embodiment. You need to do something with that angst. You need to take all of this that's spinning around in here, all of this that's firing up in here, and you need to stop lobbing philosophical stones at institutions you have no relationship to, and take some bloody action. Oh man, I am just not down for hearing another person talk about how hypocritical the church is while doing fuck all to engage with changing it. <laughs> Seriously. And so if you truly want to have a faith, if you want your deconstruction, if you want all this angst within you to actually result in more justice, you need to put bones on it. You need to do something with it. You need to take the angst within you and you need to take action. And for me, the beauty of that time of that season was suddenly I got to hang out with all these young people at Zia, all these munters, and give my life to them when I wasn't even sure if I liked Jesus at the time. But what I saw within them is that those young people became my rabbi and they discipled me into a new faith. They turned 
the diamond for me. And all my big ideas about what God was like had to be grounded in the reality of real humans and real people and not just Facebook posts that I tuned out every three or four days, right? If you keep it in your head, if you keep it in your heart, if you keep it on social media, if you stay alone, your faith will die. Your faith will die. But if you stay in community and you find a way to lay your life down, for example, we've had so many people in Blueprint over the years who have deeply struggled in working out the stage of their life and turning the diamond. And what have they done? They've gone and got right stuck in with the free store. And they've given their lives away. And the folks who call the free store home have become their rabbis and have discipled them into the next stage of faith. So if you're full of angst, find something to do with that angst. Find something to do with the angst. Otherwise, you are the car with the, the gas pedal to the floor and the handbrake on, and you are going to burn out in time. You are going to burn out in time. So firstly, we have the transition of age. What do we need to make it through? We need community. We need action and embodiment. How are we doing? Good. <laughs> All right. The second is the transition of wealth. The transition of wealth. Um, uh, a little while ago, I was at a party, not in Wellington, um, so you literally don't know anyone I'm about to talk about, um, but um, I was at this party and it was with a bunch of people who had recently bought homes. And I sat there for 45 minutes to an hour while I listened to incessant conversations about DIY. <laughs> oh my gosh, it just went on and on and on and on, eh? And, um, and, and, um, and I listened to these guys and say, They'd say, yeah, we're building a deck, and, uh... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're building a deck, and after the deck is finished, uh, you know, we're saving for the patio furniture, but we'd really love to get some blinds that go above it, so we're kind of saving for those. And then it would be great, I mean, we kind, of, we kind of need some French doors that open out onto that deck, so we're just going to get some of those. And then really we need to remodel the lounge and the kitchen, and, you know, someone else says, oh, we've painted the kids' room, but, uh... But now that we've painted the kids' room, we realise how ugly the hallway is. And so, uh, yeah, we're painting the hallway, but, you know, well, when we get the hallway done, well, naturally, we'll have to deal with the lounge. And, and when we get to the lounge, well, you know, the uh, sash windows are all rotting, so, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so what we're going to have to do is we're going we're gonna to have to get double glazed windows, you know. Um, and so it just goes on and on and on and on, and, you know, um, I'm... Um, I'm not anti a little bit of DIY, but I kind of gently started to ask the question. Um, well, I get Joe Ceci to do it for me. Um, 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 but I generally began to ask the question um, quite a bit as the night went on. Also, um, what does Priya look like for you at the moment? Oh, yeah, no, it's gone off the boil at the moment. We're just so busy with the, uh, the lounge conversion. <laughs> no joke, yeah? Or, um, oh, you know, like, how's you get along to church? Oh, yeah, but it's been sunny the last few weeks, and so we're painting, you know, we're simply not to get there. <laughs> And it goes on and on and on and on. Um, and, um, and after a while, this faith has gone on the back burner. Every spare moment has gone for house projects, so prayers, so worshipping together. So all these things that hold your faith together have disappeared while you worship this thing that you're in deep debt financing. <laughs> um, it kind of reminds me of Luke 14, the parable of Christ's kingdom as a banquet. You know, this ruler says, goes out, and he invites, um, he invites all the, the ruling class to come along to this thing. And the excuses, like, they could almost be our excuses today. It was pretty much that dinner party. Um, what else said, I just bought a field and I need to go and see it. <laughs> How weak is that shit, hey? Like, seriously, like, the field will be there tomorrow. <laughs> like, 
I can't miss field moment. Um, and um, I, I bought a field, and I, just, you know, I did some research on this passage. I also learned that it was an RSVP culture. So they actually flipped attending all this, and then at the last minute gone, yeah, no, I need to see the field. Um, just like appalling. Um, and then uh, the other one, I just bought a bunch of oxen and I want to try them out. <laughs> How do you try out an ox? <laughs> like, did you just milk all night? Or I don't know, can you milk an ox? I don't even know, you know? But, but anyway, I need to try out the ox. Um, and so, um, this thing of wealth when it comes into your life and this thing of accumulation, and, and for some of you here, it won't relate to you at this stage of your life. But the reality is, not for everybody, but for many people in New Zealand society, they will have more wealth as they go along. Now, there are, I, I don't want to ignore that there are many people who are stuck in poverty, but probably for a bunch of you in this room, for those of us who have come from middle class and probably have some generational wealth behind us, um, there is a good chance that we are going to have more wealth as life goes on. And if we just think of kind of our faith as a cup, every cup has limited capacity. And when we fill that cup with the concerns of wealth, something has to be displaced out of the cup, eh? When we have a cup and it's half full and we pull a whole, pour a whole other cup into it, something has to be displaced from that. Wealth has a, a seductive power to displace Jesus from the cup of our lives. Wealth has a seductive power to displace Jesus from the cup of our lives. Wealth has a seductive power to displace Jesus as the centre of our lives. So these moments of transitions of wealth, specifically pay increases and the acquisition of assets, are these key moments where faith needs to transition. And I just want to say briefly, it's really easy to have a go at like, um, I don't know, the DIYers or whatever. But um, I have watched over the years having a lot of proximity to, um, to uni students with faith where they spend their whole time at uni talking about how poor they are. And that's often true. Like, it is really hard to get through uni and pay rent at the moment. But then they get their first 40 to 50 hour a week job, and they keep talking about how poor they are. And then they get a pay rise, and they, keep, and they carry this poverty narrative forward, and it means that they never actually have to address the place of wealth in their life, because they always see themselves as the poor student. You know, they never, they could own five rental properties, and they'd probably still say, yeah, I'm really poor at the moment, you know? It's a mentality that holds them captive to this wealth. So the temptation of this stage is that wealth displaces our commitment to Christ. Um, so what do we need to make it through? Well, we need, we need radical generosity. That the moment new wealth enters our lives, we actually sit down and don't think about what are the opportunities for my lifestyle to increase, but what are the opportunities for God's kingdom to grow. Not what are the opportunities for my lifestyle to increase, but what are the opportunities for God's kingdom to grow. Um, I remember a few years ago, um, I had a, a pay bump and I was sitting down with my budget, which I pretty much never look at until this happens. Um, and, um, and I was just thinking, this is so exciting. There's all these different things I could be giving to there. I was making a list and in that moment, I'm sitting in my lounge, there's a knock at the front door and I look out the window and it's a guy in an IHC vest with a clipboard. And I come out and he's like, hi, I'm out here collecting for, and I'm like, I'm in. I cut him off my way. I'm like, I don't care what you've got to say next, I am signing up. And I've been like a 13-year supporter of the IHC Smile Club because he happened to turn up at the right moment of re-evaluating my wealth. <laughs> that was the best moment of that guy's day, eh? But I think we need to, um, we need to be asking when we come into moments of our new wealth or new security, what does it look like for us not to um, 
bolster our, our personal security, but what does it look like to give to those who don't even have the luxury of any security? What does it look like for us to invest in God's kingdom rather than our own lives? So radical generosity, and the second one is transparency. Um, transparency. There are probably two things that all New Zealand society and the church really hate to talk about. Our sex lives and our finances. Don't ask me about those, eh? <laughs> and, um, and there is something incredibly countercultural about us sitting down each time that we have the opportunity for greater security to invite our friends into that process, eh? Um, the other day, um, I, um, sent, uh, um, I've, actually, uh, I've actually just bought a house, which I'm planning to DIY thoroughly. Um, no. um, but um, I've got a couple of uh, housemates coming in. Um, and I, um, I, was, I was like, how do you avoid that temptation to not just like charge them the maximum amount you can in the Wellington market eh, and become the same guys that I've been railing at for like the last 10 years? So I, I started a message, I got uh, Ears, I got Sophie, I got a couple of people in this thing, and uh, I said, here's what I'm planning to charge, here's how big the rooms are, here's some photos. I said, what do you think? They said, too high, too high. <laughs> and so we talked and it went back and forth and eventually basically put this decision before a bunch of my friends who I trust and made a decision which, um, which leaves me uh, less flush but leaves me more at peace with who my God is and who he calls me to be. What does it look like for the little decisions of life to actually sit down um, and to lay our finances transparently before one another and before God? So the transition of um, age and stage, we had secondly the transition of wealth, um, and finally the transition of loss and grief. Uh, the other day I went to um, the funeral of Chris Casey, um, who some of you will know. Um, Chris Casey is an amazing Wellington-based youth worker who uh, I would say gave his life to young people for probably since he was a young person, about 45 to 50 years. Um, and about 25 years of that to the Wellington Diocese. Um, and, uh, and in that service, um, we watched people now in their 40s and 50s get up and talk about how Chris's faithfulness when they were teenagers now means that they're following Jesus. It's like incredibly powerful way. Like, an amazing guy. But I was driving out there, and man, I was pissed off, eh? He was 63. He was right ready to retire. He had worked his ass off, serving God, serving the church, and I know there's no transaction or whatever. God doesn't owe us anything, but I'm like, man, God, like, 63? A faithful person. Couldn't you have done better by him? There's this, um... There's this, uh amazing mystic, um, Julian of Norwich, and she had this phrase that she wrote in a journal of hers, and she said, God, if this is how you treat your friends, now I know why you have so few. <laughs> <laughs> she had this moment of like deep anger, and sometimes it does feel like very, very unjust, and to be honest, like, I felt furious on Chris's behalf. Like, I felt like he had been shortchanged, you know? And, and to be honest, I think that was the cherry on the top of watching a bunch of people around who obviously laid their lives before God and just get the shit kicked out of them. You're just like, what do you do with that? And there was this beautiful moment in the service where um, a guy got up, a good friend of Chris's, and he said that he'd been talking to Chris, and he said, Chris, don't you feel shortchanged? And Chris replied to him, he said, I don't feel cheated, I feel blessed. <laughs> 
And I was just like, oh, broke me. Eh? I'm like, I don't get to feel outraged on behalf of the guy who's not outraged, eh? But somehow within this, he had a heart of gratitude for the 63 great years he'd had, rather than a heart of bitterness for the 20 or 30 he missed out on. We have these moments of profound loss in our lives. It's a very small number of people who get through this life unscathed, eh? Whether it's a loss of identity, you know, I um, spend a lot of time taking my daughter Luna to different playgroups and end up in chats with lots of young mums. And for many of them, there's this profound sense of loss of identity with having a kid. Like they had these jobs, they had these different lives, and now no one relates to them except as a mother. Um, and you know, and, and it feels like deflating to them, it feels like a loss of identity. There's a real grief in that for them. And then you meet others who go through breakdowns of relationships. Um, and um, as I've been through myself, and just the heart-wrenching pain that it is um, to, um, to lose love and to lose someone you care about. And then we have the loss of people through death. And many of us, um, you know, by this stage in our lives, have lost someone precious to us, eh? There are all these kind of little deaths we experience in our lives along the way, like tiny little moments where it just feels like we're dying a little bit inside. And the natural response to this, I think, sometimes is the words that Jesus said, you know, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is going on? I, uh, a little while ago, Rose and I sat down with um, the kids' author and mystic Joy Cowley, um, and she talked about, um, she said of like, she's, She's another one who is just, you know, going to the end full of, full of um, joy and sacredness rather than bitterness. She's going blind and she talks about how it's the beginning of the soul giving birth to true sight. <laughs> Amazing lady. She lost her, her husband like two weeks after we were there. And she said, we go through many crucifixions in our lives. That's like the story of faith, though, is that we are dying and being resurrected with Christ throughout our lives, that we're always dying a little. And the challenge of the transition that is lost is whether our many crucifixions can become many resurrections. The challenge of our season of loss is whether our many crucifixions can become many resurrections. And I think the key to this, a couple of things, a couple of tools we need in our kids to make it through the transition that is loss or grief, is firstly lament. Is the art of saying this Thing sucks. This sucks so much. And God, I'm angry with you about it. Is the ability, and I don't know how we lost this somehow. And in the West, that we lost this in our Bible, we know the 50% of the damn thing is lament. As people saying, God, where are you, God? What have you done? You know, David the psalmist was called a man after God's own heart, absolutely committed to Jesus, but he spends half the time saying, Where are you, God? What are you doing? This absolute picture of faithfulness. Because that is a dynamic, real relationship with God, eh? If you only say happy things to God, your faith needs to deepen, eh? You need to start fighting with God. You need to start going to the place of lament for the things that piss you off. You need to scream into the night. So lament, we need that. We need to learn that for the moments where the loss and the grief is so powerful. And then to, to come full circle, as I said, with um, age and stage, we desperately need community. So another thing with loss and grief 
that much like those days of the transition of faith, we so often choose that moment to say, I just need to be alone. And man, I get it. Like, I've been through some hard stuff over the last few years, um, and when, I'm sure some people relate to this, when you're on the knife edge of like crying most of the time, and the idea of a friend putting their hand on your shoulder, you just know it's all going to flood out, eh? I understand that desire for us to withdraw it. And particularly, you know, sometimes around um, things of loss, there can be deep shame. There can be deep shame. There can be shame if we lost um, someone important to us that we never said the words we wish we'd said. Or if we lost, if we, a relationship breaks down, what did I do wrong for it to get there? And that shame, much as it did in the garden, causes us to hide. But community is so key for this. As people who are not where you are, people who are in a place of healing, who are in a place of joy, who are in a place of strength, who can actually hold us through that. We resist the urge to remove ourselves and we allow others to hold us. It's really hard. But it is how we come through this. And then further than that, I think, it's not just that the people we know and the community that we know hold us through that. But it's actually that the whole family of God all throughout time and history holds us through that as well. If I'm not making sense, um, a couple of years ago I got handed a prayer book that belonged to my great-great-grandmother. Um, and it was actually gifted to my daughter Luna, so it's her great-great-great-grandmother's prayer book. And I opened the front of it. I live on Todman Street in Brooklyn where I'm the minister up there. And I didn't know this, but I opened it and it had her name and it said, Ethel Witter, Todman Street, Brooklyn. And there was this moment of like enormous homecoming for me to realise that the same prayers I pray today on that street are the same prayers that my great-great-grandmother prayed. And centuries before that, through wars, through pandemics, through unemployment, through plagues, through suffering, people all throughout the family of God have prayed these prayers and leaned on these same truths and found themselves within it. So that last one, transitions of loss, lament and community. So I'm going to wrap up here. I'm aware I may have gone for a while. Um, I started at that third part of the parable of the sower, the three to our faith, which is the worries, the riches, and the pleasures. And that these things are particularly alive at the moment. It's a profound transition in our lives. And these transitions are the transition of age and stage which requires community and action. The transition of wealth, which requires generosity and transparency. And the transition of loss, which requires lament and community. So I want to hold those out to you um, today. And um, what I think we might do at this moment is I just invite you to uh, turn to the person next to you in threes or threes. Um, one of those things will be sitting on top for you at the moment. Um, and I just want to invite you to share with that person where you find yourself in those journeys at the moment. Cool.